0: Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Notice I've got my name tag on here. So we're in good shape. This thing's rocking and rolling a little this morning here. I have to teach on Jonah. <laughs> oh, Don't feel bad, Jim, about forgetting my name. When we were, um, one time I was doing a wedding ceremony. and horror of horrors, I forgot the bride's name. Imagine doing a wedding ceremony without mentioning the bride's name. It happened at least once in history, I can attest for that, because I forgot her name. That was terrible, but I'm glad that's over. Movie previews are a great example of why we struggle in the Christian life. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but I think about it almost every time I see a movie preview, and then I go see the movie, and it's nothing like the preview. Or, worse, the best parts of the movie they've shown you in the preview. I remember Kathy and I saw a, a preview on Winston Churchill movie, and I thought, man, that looks like a great movie. We went to the movie, and it was not that great. And it was sort of frustrating. You felt you know, sort of gypped and duped. The preview showed us the seven exciting moments in the, in the movie, and you saw them all for free in about two and a half minutes. Social media, of course, is the same. You see a very curated representation of what people want to show you that their life is like, and the reality is it's probably nothing like that. It's a lot like Christmas cards as well. You know, when you send out a Christmas card photo, those are, uh, those are fun you look at you know the perfectly combed hair every hair is in place you know every everybody's all you know zipped up and smiling and it looks just perfect but what we don't show is the fact that it took 100 photos to get that one photo that we're willing to show everybody the reality is that's just a snapshot moment where things happen to look good and the reality is most of the time we struggle we often view the Christian life like movie previews, like social media, like Christmas cards. We view it the way we want it to be rather than the way it is. When we pray, we have this ideal of, Lord, this is how it should be. If, if I am walking in your will, this is what it's going to look like. And even though we read in the Bible that that's not necessarily true, we hear lessons taught and um, uh, truth being revealed to us through the scriptures, we still want it to be that way, uh, even though we know it isn't that way. And so there's a great challenge in our prayer life, attention tension in our walk with God that uh, our life isn't what we want it to be. Rather, our life is what God wants it to be at this point. Uh, Many of you probably know that my work and my business, I have a a business called Walking the Bible Lands. It's a virtual video experience on on the computer uh, that allows people to experience the lands of the Bible without ever having to leave home. And one of the things I do every year is come out with a bloopers uh, video at the end of every year that shows all the mess ups that I did during all of the takes that we, because, you know, when you show a video like uh, a preview or like Christmas card, or whatever, you don't in- intentionally include mistakes. You leave them out and you put in the good stuff. You make the music fade up just right and you make it all look real good. And then, uh, but it's important to include the bloopers. I include the bloopers just to let everybody know this is reality. And we, 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 Life is bloopers. And it's funny, some of the most engagement I get over all the videos are the bloopers. <laughs> where people say, thank you so much for you know, showing us that you mess up. And thank you for being authentic. And it's like, well shoot, if messing up is all it takes to connect, I can do that easy. <laughs> it's real easy. Well, also in my work, I've had the privilege of walking a lot of ancient roads in a number of countries, uh, amazing roads, Roman roads that have been that have been created uh, when the Roman Empire went through and paved the world, literally. For example, there's a, a road in Turkey called the Via Sebasti. The Via Sebasti. It, uh, it's one of the roads that the Apostle Paul walked on his missionary journeys. In fact, there's a particular road that he walked on his journey uh, that he walked at least four times, twice on his first journey and then another time on his second and third journey. In Greece, there is a road called the Via Ignatia. And some of you who have been with me to Philippi, and uh, you remember that road runs right down through Philippi, but it actually, Paul got on that road to begin with at uh, a place called Neapolis, where the gospel first came to Europe when he was traveling with Silas and Timothy. But there's a Roman road that you can walk on. It's, I mean, Romans built roads and they have lasted thousands of years. Um, in Italy, just south of Rome, is a road called the Appian Way. It's another beautifully preserved Roman road. In fact, I think the Olympics back in the 70s, the marathon ran part of it, uh, ran on part of that road. But in Israel, Roman roads, I, it feels like that they are everywhere, probably because... There's more time generally spent in the Bible lands in Israel than any place else. And one one of the things the Romans did that was really wonderful is that they they didn't just create brand new roads. If there was a great place for a road, they just pave right over the ancient one. If there was a good path, they would just improve it. They would just upgrade it. And one of the roads that they did that on is uh, the Good Samaritan Road, or in the Bible it's called the Ascent of Adumim, the Ascent of... The red places, because of all the the rocks, red rocks, or sometimes maybe because of the red blood that was spilled. This is the, the the road of Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan was robbed and, and left half dead. Interestingly, I was robbed on the Good Samaritan Road as well. I was there one time doing some filming, and some Bedouins relieved me of my iPad. I didn't uh, realize it until uh, after the fact, but uh, that's kind of a kind of neat to say. You know, I was robbed on the Good Samaritan Road. Except I wasn't left, you know, half dead, which was which I'm grateful for. But there's another road in Israel that uh, is a little bit off the beaten path, or you have to at least know where to look for it, or you'll miss it. But the road that David walked from Bethlehem to the Elah Valley to fight Goliath is uh, a a road along a ridge. But in the Roman times, they came, and a good place for a road's a good place for a road. They paved right over it. And they made a road right there, and if you drive by today, the main highway goes right by there. So the great place for a road back in David's day was the same as in Jesus' day, the same as in our day. It just continues to build right over the same places. In fact, this was probably the road that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus uh, took in their flight to Egypt when they left Bethlehem, the same route that, uh, that David would have taken. But anyway, I mention all these roads because today, in our uh, time in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to walk a road. It's uh, the road to Emmaus. So let's look together in Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. This is another Roman road, and uh, it's sort of sad that this road is uh, in a very deteriorated, deteriorated state. Tours never go there. It's hard to get there, and it's a, a bit of a challenge to find. And and even once you get there, there's not a whole lot left. The construction of a cemetery and some a water main and other things have caused it to basically vanish. But there are still a few curbstones. You know, when Romans would build roads, they like they spent as much time on roads as they did, did building temples. Because for the Romans it was essential to build good highways because that was their uh, the key to their defense. Their soldiers needed to get places fast, and they built these roads in order to make it happen. When God was was planning and getting the world ready for Jesus Christ to come, He organized sovereign He sovereignly organized history in several ways. First of all, the whole Old Testament is a, a preview and a preparation for the coming of Jesus. And interestingly, when you think about it, even the languages that the, that the two Testaments were written in testify to God's intent. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Guess who it was written to? The Hebrews, exactly. Um, because it was written to God's people, and primarily they were the audience. But then when God, between the Testaments, there was this 400 years of silence in which God was very active in history and he used Alexander the Great when he conquered the world. He Hellenized the world. Hell, and Hellenization is like the Greekization of the world. And he forced the world to begin speaking one language, at least in their trade and communication and legal stuff, and that's Greek. And so the New Testament is written in Greek. Guess who God wanted to receive the, the New Testament? The Greeks or the Gentiles. And so even in the language of the Bible, you see God's intent, that he began with his people and the covenant to Abraham, but his desire was that it would spread to the whole world. So God prepared the way, not only in the Old Testament, preparing for the promises of of Jesus to come, but also in the language and in the Roman roads that now that are all over the world, that the Apostle Paul and others could easily communicate uh, this this good new message of Jesus. So Luke 24, this is our, um, our time with Dr. Luke as we take one message from each book of the Bible. And Luke, you know, wrote more scripture than anybody in the New Testament, wrote n- more New Testament uh, content. Think what about Paul? Well, Paul wrote more books, but Luke wrote more words. If you compare the actual content, Luke in Luke and Acts wrote more content than all of the Apostle Paul's content put together. Luke 24 takes us to the resurrection, and you can see down the first 12 verses, we won't read it, but if you just kind of glance down through here, this is Luke's account of the resurrection, of the women going to the tomb, and they see the angels, the angels tell them he is risen, go tell the disciples he is risen, and they run and they communicate it, and the disciples tell the women, you're crazy. And they don't believe. Peter, though, goes and runs to the tomb, stoops in, looks, and goes, huh, and then goes home. Then, verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day, so it's Sunday, to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So let's pause there for a second. I I looked in the back of my Bible, and it doesn't have a very good map, and so your Bible probably doesn't either. But uh, if you were to find Jerusalem, or at least think Jerusalem in your mind, if you were to go about three and a half miles west of Jerusalem, you would come to a place today called Moza. It's right on the main road uh, headed to to Tel Aviv, so it would be very easy to, to pass by it today. But uh, we're told here that Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. The original language in the text, you may have a, a marginal reading there that says that it was sixty stadia. A stadia or one stadion is about six hundred feet, so it's just uh, just under seven miles. But Emmaus is three and a half miles away. So Luke is probably considering the round trip of this um, of this story, because you know. They not only go to Emmaus, but we'll see they run back to Jerusalem. So the disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus, and we're told in verse 14, And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Kind of interesting to picture this. You've got these two disciples walking along, talking about all these events that have happened on Resurrection Sunday, how the women say that they went to the tomb and they found, you know, the empty tomb, and then they saw angels in a vision, and They come back and report this, and so these two unnamed disciples at this point are walking along the road to Emmaus, west of Jerusalem. They're headed downhill toward Emmaus, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears and starts walking along with him, but they don't know it's Jesus. He hides his appearance from them, which is sort of fascinating to think that you can do that in the resurrection. When we have resurrected bodies, that would be kind of cool if we could do that, wouldn't it? you kind of walk into a conversation and then just start talking about yourself and to see how people uh, respond that'd be dangerous though cuz they may tell you stuff you don't want to hear and then all of a sudden <laughs> you could go it's me and they'd be they'd be afraid well that happens but it's it's joy on their part and uh, and not fear they're walking along they're talking about Jesus and Jesus asks them what are you talking about and notice it says they stood still, and they're looking sad. He asked them a question. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus asks a question it isn't because he doesn't know the answer it's because he wants you to say the answer, like when uh, up in Galilee his disciples were walking along and he asks them, uh, "What were you discussing on the way?" and they didn't say anything because they had been saying they had been discussing which one of them was the greatest see Christ asks the question to get them to say it not because he didn't know the answer it's the same thing here he knew exactly what they were discussing which is why he walked up and began the conversation what were you discussing on the way and they stopped looking and looking sad so they're walking along and then it says they stopped they quit walking and they just kind of stood there and you can picture it they just they just sort of dropped their head and they're just looking sad They were disillusioned, they were discouraged, and finally they spill and they tell Jesus why they're so discouraged. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Again, a question that Jesus knew the answer to. What things? He wants to hear them talk about it. And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a, mighty, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed and word, in the sight of God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Cleopas, so now we know one of them's named. We've never heard of Cleopas before. He's a disciple of Jesus, not one of the 12, but you know, a disciple with a little D, not a big D, who followed Jesus along. And Cleopas says that he's sad, and he, he asks Jesus this question, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? What a great question. Jesus was the only one that did know what was going on. <laughs> Cleopas describes why they were so sad because Jesus was, notice, past tense, a prophet. Notice, just a prophet. He was a prophet, past tense, who was killed. We were hoping it was he who would redeem Israel. What does that mean? They were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah who would redeem Israel, meaning that they would he would rescue them from Rome, from the power of Rome. Uh, But obviously he wasn't the Messiah because everybody knows that that's what the Messiah would do. And that's why we're all sad. I mean, we really had hopes in this guy. And, you know, it's been three days. And, yeah, I mean, some of our women said that they saw a vision of angels and stuff. But, you know, look at Jesus' response to them, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now that is a verse. Think about that. Verse 27, beginning with Moses. What books did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but I mean, we're talking the beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning with Genesis, Luke tells us, he explained to them the things concerning him himself in all the scriptures. So, the whole Old Testament, Jesus explains how the Old Testament points to him as the Messiah. You know, if you could get in a time machine and go back and be at any any moment in the life of Christ, what would what would you choose? A miracle would be pretty cool to see, wouldn't it? Sermon on the Mount, that'd be kinda neat to hear. Uh the resurrection? That'd be You know, that'd be pretty nice, except as soon as the angel appeared, you'd fall down and faint. You'd miss the whole thing. But for me, I'd want to walk on this road and listen to this conversation. To have Christ himself explain how the whole Old Testament points to him. Now, we know some things in the Old Testament and how they point to him, but to have Jesus himself explain it. The oldest copies that we have of the Hebrew scriptures are the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date a couple of centuries before Jesus had this conversation. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of these prophecies. Just listen to a few of these. I mean, I won't mention all of them because there are hundreds. But listen to these are the things that Jesus possibly, probably explained as he was walking along. Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea talked about his sojourn in Egypt. Isaiah talked about him performing miracles. Psalm 22 talked about his death by crucifixion. Isaiah 53 talked about the fact that he was despised, rejected, and sacrificed for our sins. Genesis chapter 3 talks about him being the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan. Isaiah 53 once again talks about him being raised from the dead. And these are just a few. In Jesus' first coming alone, he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, and there are more to come with his second coming. These prophecies fulfilled and pointed to a plan that supersedes history, a plan that began outside of time and yet that was fulfilled in time, in space, and geography. Notice the details here of verse uh, what does he say? Verse 25. Foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. See, this was their problem. It's not that they didn't believe in what the prophets had spoken, they didn't believe in all that the prophets had spoken. They picked the parts they wanted to believe. They put together the the movie preview of the coming Messiah, and it didn't include any of the crucifixion parts. It was all the parts they wanted to see. They put together Jesus' Facebook page, and it didn't include anything to do with the crucifixion or the suffering. It had everything to do with the miracles, with the, the reigning Messiah, with the squashing Rome, with the glory, not the suffering. But Jesus rebukes them because they didn't believe all. And as a result, they were dragging their heels that day sad. They didn't get it. There's a principle that we can derive from this, and uh, I hope that it's helpful for you in days when you need it. And it's simply this. Much of our sadness comes from clinging Only to parts of the Bible. Much of our sadness comes from clinging only to parts of the Bible. And we get that from Jesus saying, from rebuking them, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. We love the parts and the promises of God that talk about blessing, that talk about joy, that talk about the prosperity and the provision. We love that. And it's all true. It's there, but it's not all of the promises of God. We're also told that there's struggle in the Christian life and not to be surprised by it. In fact, Peter would later write, don't consider it strange when there are fiery trials among you. It's normal. That's the normal Christian life. So much of our sadness comes from clinging only parts of the Bible. Uh, The Lord has not given us charge of his Facebook page. He puts it together, and if we were to look at it as it were, we would see the whole thing, all, that there includes suffering. And he tells them this. They were sad because they struggled with unbelief because the cross didn't fit their definition of the Messiah. And in the same way, we are often sad and struggling with unbelief because the cross doesn't fit our view of the Christian life, and yet it's there. Keep your finger here in chapter 24, if you would, and turn back to chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. Because in this same book, from Luke's same pen, he quotes the words of Jesus. Luke 9, start in verse 22. Jesus says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Christ is saying, look, don't be surprised when life is tough. It's designed to be tough. It was tough for me. It will be tough for me. I've got a cross to bear, and so do you. But I love what Jesus says in these verses here because he's basically saying, you can deny yourself, but that doesn't mean you lose yourself. Denying yourself doesn't mean you lose yourself. In fact, the, the paradox is, in order to find life that is truly life, it requires that you deny yourself. You want to find life that is truly life, it requires that you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We are able to deal with all of what the scriptures say because part of what the scriptures say is that now is a cross and the glory is coming, but the glory is coming. Notice he included his resurrection here, that he be killed and be raised up on the third day. The same is true with our lives, is that we have a cross to bear, but that's not the end of the story. The story also includes there is an incredible future. And if we were just to do the math, think about your life on this earth. Your life on this Earth, if you live to be 100 years old, is less than 10 percent of your life on this Earth, because we have in the future kingdom of God a thousand years on this Earth, and these bodies resurrected. And so when we think about, you know the struggle of our lives, or our whole life is struggle, wait a minute. How do you find your life? You don't just define your life as, you know, these 90-plus years here on this Earth. If you do, you're defining life wrong. You're not defining it. You're only believing uh, in part of what the Bible promises, not in all, as Jesus says, of the promises of the Bible. The Bible talks about us living on this very earth for another thousand years in these resurrected bodies under the authority of Jesus. And that's just this earth. Then there's the eternal state, you know, which you can't put a, you can't, uh, Quantify. It's eternal. So how do we, how do we deal with it? it? It comes from keeping it in, in perspective. Yes, it's tough now, but now is not eternal. What's coming is, is coming, and that's, that's the encouragement. So turn back to chapter 24, and let's continue. For Cleopas and this other disciple here who was walking along, the other one's not named, But their expectations were accurate of the Messiah. We hope that he would redeem Israel. Absolutely, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to redeem Israel. That's part of the plan. They had a correct expectation, but they just didn't see the full picture, and their timing was off. They were disappointed because God didn't fulfill their time schedule. So, verse 28, let's keep reading. As they approached the village, meaning Emmaus, where they were going, And he acted as though he were going farther, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it. He began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I like that Luke records this because uh, I don't know if this is all they said, probably not, probably a whole lot more they said. But the fact that this is what Luke tells us is important because when their eyes were opened... And then they realize it's Jesus serving us bread, and then he vanishes. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Come back. i got stuff I want to ask you. I want to talk to you. I want to ask more questions. I want to hear more from you. But notice their response wasn't, wow, we just had dinner with Jesus, or wow, that was really Jesus. What they were amazed at was the scriptures, the scriptures made sense to us on the road when he opened up the scriptures to us, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. In fact, look at verse 32 where it says the word therefore explaining, there is a, it really is the word opening, while he was opening the scriptures to us. In the same way that their eyes were opened, verse 31 their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus. The scriptures were opened and they understood Jesus. It's the same, same idea. Their eyes were prevented initially, back in verse 16. But there in Emmaus, Luke tells us their eyes were opened. Joy came to their hearts because they had a fuller understanding of the Bible. The scriptures made sense. Verse 35. Um, sorry, verse 33. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. I like that. They, they hustle back, back to Jerusalem, retracing the steps. And as they're walking along there in the dark, you've got to, you've, you've got to imagine that they were going, remember what he said right here? You know, as they're going backwards, remember how he talked about Isaiah 53 in this, very sp- in this very spot? And they're retracing all of their memories of how he opened the scriptures and they get to Jerusalem and everybody's gathered, turns out Jesus has appeared there too. But notice it says, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, meaning to Peter. Now keep your finger here, if you would, in uh, Luke 24 and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul wrote about this. Remember the last time that Jesus and Peter spoke together? Or their last interaction? The last interaction before Jesus died was Peter denying Christ. Now, imagine that. That's hard to imagine emotionally, but imagine that emotionally. Peter in the upper room had said, Lord, I will never deny you, and, and Jesus said, you will. In fact, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me that you know me, you know, uh, three times. Well, it happened. And on the third time, the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and, and uh, Peter, Jesus, their, their eyes lock, and then Peter runs out and weeps bitterly, and that is the last memory that Peter has of Jesus until Easter Sunday, and the Lord appears to Peter, or to Simon. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians about something completely different in context of resurrection, but look at what he he writes. He says, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures.' and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now pause there for a second, and notice Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus did. This was all according to the scriptures. There's nothing surprising or hidden about the fact that Jesus died for our sins. The scriptures told us that he'd do that, that he was buried and raised on the third day. The scriptures told us that this was going to happen, exactly what Jesus says. Then verse 5 and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. The Apostle Paul also notes that Jesus appeared to Peter first before anybody else. Peter was hurting. He was struggling because of what he had done. Jesus appears to Peter personally. We aren't told what their conversation was, but we know it was good because Peter, uh, Peter shows up once again in the scene. And boy, he is powerful in the book of Acts after that fact. So flip back to Luke 24, and let's look at where this meeting probably happened. We don't know for sure this is where it happened, but it probably happened at this point. Luke 24, look back up at verse 12. Remember after Peter ran to the tomb, stooped stooped and looked in? Verse 12, it says, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So Peter's home. And then, of course, the road to Emmaus conversation is what's recorded next. So it's very well could have been. That while Peter was there by himself, at whatever house he was staying at, there in Jerusalem, that the Lord appeared to him. And again, we aren't told what the, what the conversation was, but you can just imagine how marvelous it was. Remember the old Don Francisco song, He's Alive? Any of you all remember that song? There's been some modern renditions of it that are, that are good as well, but um, it's all about Peter's experience in Jesus coming to him. And he says that he raised me to my feet and as I looked into his eyes, you know, before he gets into the great chorus, he's alive. Love was shining out from him like sunlight from the skies. That's not scripture, but it's a wonderful imagination of what that conversation was. Just a beautiful reunion of grace where the Lord says to Peter, look, we got more to do and I forgive you. Well, notice also, In the verses that follow, Peter's bitter tears are now turned into tears of forgiveness and grace. Notice in the verses that follow here, verse 36 and following. It says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. So now Jesus appears to all of them in this room. So he appeared to the the. The women at the tomb, we know from another gospel, he appeared to these two along the road to Emmaus. We know that he appeared to Peter first, even before these two uh, on the road to Emmaus because the Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. And now he is appearing uh, to this whole group. Peace be to you, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Do you have any have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So What's he doing with the fish? It's not like he's hungry. He's basically saying, look, it's really me. I'm really here. A, a spirit does not eat broiled fish. So I'm, it's really me. I'm really here before you. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Look at this next verse is great. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Meaning, stay in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. So this is the end of the, of the Gospel of Luke. Of course, the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke continues the story right from this very point and with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Notice again that the, the centrality of the Scriptures. Jesus appears before them, And once he basically convinces them, look, it's really me, it's really physically me here resurrected among you, Jesus makes a beeline to the Bible. And he says, the words that I spoke with you that are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. And this wonderful statement that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It takes us all the way back to when it says, that he, uh, verse 31, their eyes were opened, they realized it was Jesus. Verse 32, as he opened the scriptures to them walking on the road, it's the same idea. I hope that when you're reading the Bible that you ask the Lord to do that for you too because it's possible to be looking at the text and not seeing it. You know, we do that whenever we're trying to find the glasses that are on our head. It's the same thing. You know, you're looking at it, but you're not seeing it. It's the same in the Bible. You can read something, and then all of a sudden you see something, and you think, whoa, I never saw that before. That's the Holy Spirit giving you an insight into the text. I think so much of our time in glory is just going to be, you know, in a wonderful Bible class, probably taught by Dr. Toussaint or somebody, in which we realize what we had all along and never realized it. think that was in the gospel of Luke my whole life and I missed it ah there's going to be probably so much of that in the sense of just realizing what we have in the scriptures we have in the scriptures an inexhaustible text you can read it every year for the rest of your life and you will still barely scratch the surface of the wonderfulness that's there for you and for me I do my best to read the Bible every year, and I've done it now for many years, and every time I read it, there's more there. And I'm surprised at the things I forget that I remember in a new way, but it's the same for you. Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So when you're reading the scriptures, open your, ask the Lord to open your mind, to open your eyes, It's like what the psalmist said, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. It's a a good prayer. Well, here's the second principle from the text, from our text today. The better we understand the whole Bible, the better we'll understand Christ and ourselves. The better we understand the whole Bible, the better we'll understand Christ and ourselves. Because Jesus here in Luke 24, Jesus is inseparably linked to understanding the scriptures. Understanding the scriptures is what gave joy to these two who walked on the road to Emmaus. Understanding the scriptures is what Jesus drove home here in, um, back in Jerusalem with this group that was gathered. It was the centrality of the scriptures in their life. It wasn't just the experience of seeing the resurrected Christ. It was connecting that to the Bible. So that's why I'm just urging you to never get to the point in your Christian life where you figure, you know what, I kind of got this Bible thing down. I'm going to read, you know, John Grisham or something instead. If it becomes between John Grisham or John the Apostle, I hope you'll opt for John the Apostle, assuming you haven't already read uh, Anyway, I'm just saying, the better we understand the whole Bible, the better we'll understand Christ and ourselves. And there's a couple of key words there. The whole Bible. Don't just read the Psalms and Proverbs. Don't just read those, those passages where the whipped cream's on top. Get down in, into difficult passages. Do cross-referencing. Spend an hour studying the Bible rather than just a five- or ten-minute uh, box to check. Really get into the meat of the Word. You will be rewarded for it. I promise you. And the whole Bible. Take time. If you have not read the entire Bible, you've got surprises waiting for you. You've got some great stuff in there that the Lord wants to show you. This would be a great time to commit to doing it. You don't have to do it in a year. You can do it in two years. You can do it in three years. But do it. There's some wonderful stuff there for you if you'll read the whole Bible. The Apostle Paul said, All Scripture is profitable, is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. It's all there for you. It's like a gift under the tree that you have left unwrapped. Everybody opens all their Christmas gifts. If there's a part of the Bible that you've not read, that is a Christmas gift you have left unwrapped. Nobody does that. Let's read it. So, the whole Bible, but you'll get a better understanding of Christ, which is wonderful, and you'll also get a better understanding of yourself. Like James talks about looking in the Bible is like looking in the mirror. There's a reflection. You get to see yourself. Jesus tells them, wait until in, here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, uh, and then he says, you are witnesses. Notice, he says, it begins with you. He says that the the Christ is going to suffer, verse 46, rise again from the dead on the third day, repentance and forgiveness of sins, proclaimed in his name to all the nations. But then notice it funnels down. All the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. It goes from the whole world, begins with you. So, for us to be witnesses of these things, it means that we have to be in the scriptures. That we have to let the scriptures impact our lives before we presume to try to impact somebody else's life. It begins with us, Jesus says. Now life, life is tough and life is hard and often gives us perplexing moments. You're going to find yourself in life standing along the road to Emmaus, walking with Jesus, but standing, stopping, and looking sad. And when that happens, remember that it's probably happening because you're only clinging to parts of the Bible and not the whole thing. Broaden your perspective and realize that whatever it is you're struggling with may be part of God's plan for you, not because he's angry, but because he loves you. And he wants to draw you close through that painful season in a way that you never would have experienced otherwise. It was the doubt and confusion that these two on the road to Emmaus felt that gave them such joy once they looked in the scriptures and realized that Christ is not just a prophet, but he is exactly who they thought and so much more. That Jesus isn't just the Messiah who's going to free them from Rome. He's the Messiah that's going to free them from sin. (laughs) Their sights were far too short. It wasn't just this little temporary help in this life. It was an eternal blessing that Jesus came to give. And it's the same in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we can look at the scope of, of history as we said up front with the Hebrew Bible focusing on the nation Israel and the Greek New Testament focusing on the world. That your love for the world has been your plan for the very beginning. And we Gentiles are the recipients of that blessing um, that you have promised to the Jews and one day we'll give it to them again. Lord God, we're thankful that you've sent Jesus, Thank you. thankful for the scriptures that point to him, and we're thankful for those seasons of life that reveal to us that we're only believing the parts of the Bible we want to believe and not the whole thing. Give us the discipline, the encouragement, the faithfulness to be in the word on a regular basis in all of the scriptures that we may be exposed to truth and allow the Spirit of God to illuminate, to make make sense and apply it in our day-to-day struggles. To give us a perspective that goes beyond the moment right now, a broader perspective that looks forward to the rest of our lives, to the future resurrection, and even to eternity. Thank you, Father, for the promises in the Word that show us that our lives are... Uh, Lives that follow the life of Christ, where he took up a cross and then was raised from the dead. That we take up crosses, looking forward one day to our resurrection as well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.